This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. In this first episode of The Gender Card, we find out why and how women win or lose in big transitional periods, both on a global scale and in their own personal lives. And we discover what brought together our esteemed experts, Griffith Law School Associate Professor Dr Susan Harris-Rimmer and Griffith Business School Associate Professor Dr Sarah Davies to start a radical research network for gender equity at university level. Susan Harris-Rimmer, Sarah Davies, welcome to the Gender Card Podcast. Thanks for having us. What is this Gender Card Podcast? We've just heard our lovely snazzy intro and theme music. What is this podcast all about? Do you remember when Julia Gillard said at the end of her prime ministership she didn't want to play the gender card and she never wanted to play the gender card as the first female prime minister? We want to play the gender card. (laughs) We want to play it hard. So that's what this podcast is about, bringing you some serious feminist perspectives on really cool areas of modern life and um, introducing you to these amazing new researchers that you might not have come across before. So that's the idea. Yeah, and the gender card doesn't need to be scary. You know, it can actually be, don't be afraid of the gender card. It's actually quite, it's an area of progress. It means it's, it's inclusive, it's representative and it's exciting, actually. It opens up conversations and, you know, allows people, this podcast is about allowing people who think, what on earth is gender equality and what on earth is gender equality research and what does that sort of thing look like? And, you know, we are your go-to guide to help you sound a lot more, you know, aware of yourself and others through this podcast. (laughs) That's sort of the idea. (laughs) So is it a bit about making that gender aspect uh, a bit less scary? I suppose sometimes in conversations people do seem to recoil a little bit still, do you find, with gender issues or is that not the case so much? Are you kidding? (laughs) Try being us, like try being, you know, reasonably well-known feminist academics and still getting invited to parties is quite tri- quite difficult. But <laughs> we are fun. We are fun. Yeah. We love it. Yes, so, invite us to parties, please. We don't get invited anymore. So I think I think the idea is people see this this kind of feminist work is very critical, and yeah. it often is. You know, we. Mm. I mean, let's face it, we're boiling with rage a lot of the time. I, I'm basically angry. Eye roll time. is my default. That's it. So, you know, we do a lot of critique. And we, you know, we part of your skills as a gender researcher is being able to deconstruct the world around you and look at it differently. So there's a lot of critique involved. Um, but there's also a lot of creativity because mm. our researchers are trying to imagine a world where men and women are equal and that gender is a... All different performances of gender are okay, you know. What would that look like and how would that... How would that feel? So there's a sort of a sense of a beautiful, imaginary, creative sort of spark to gender research. So we're trying to kind of convey that as well. So, you know, yes, we can take an episode of The Bachelorette and slice it every way till Sunday. I can tell you that it's fun and you should definitely watch The Bachelorette with me. But we can also do this kind of creative work, right? So it is about gender research not being limited to one particular area, like it's more a humanities kind of thing. This sounds like it intersects through quite a lot of different aspects of life. 
Very much so, and that was that was the that was the inspiration behind what Sue and I were wanting to do was. For us, it was thinking about the role of gender in your finances and how you organise and think about who has access to accounts and who decides how money is going to be spent and how are we thinking about our superannuations right through to how do we design cities and how do we think about what is a safe city, what's a city that is accessible for, for different types of people who are living, you know, who have different types of representation and want to feel safe and want to participate, want to access toilets. You know, these are the sorts of things that are a lot of that the people in our group are thinking about and doing. What do you do if you want to travel on your own as a woman? And how do you do that? And what what sorts of what processes do you go through in terms of being able to navigate your itinerary as a single woman traveling alone? That may be a little bit different, but actually might be quite similar as well. And as a service provider in that space, what do they need to be aware of for you as a consumer? So for us, there's a lot of, it's actually showing that a lot of this sort of, um, the gender question, the gender card is always there. We just don't talk about it a lot. And if we did, we'd actually find that there's a lot of opportunity for more discussion. There's lots of opportunity for entrepreneurialism. And there's a lot of opportunity to actually find out some really interesting things about how, how people live and, and how they how they celebrate you know, who they are. And we'll be speaking to a couple of those researchers that you mentioned as well as part of this series. Oh, yes. We, we, we do sport. We do tourism. We do financial literacy. We do, uh, what are the other ones we do? We do women and politics, yes. which, of course, oh, gosh, is, a, yes. is a, you know, that's, that's sort of the more standard go-to. But then, you know, we've also got um, people who are doing trafficking and thinking mm. about, you know, the importance of gender. We've got Indigenous scholars and, you know, the the types of issues that come up for them, which may be quite different, but also might be quite similar. We've also got uh, researchers who do music, you know, so that more creative and the idea of thinking about it in that space. And then we also have researchers who are thinking about justice and, you know, and, and if you're survivors of violence, how, how do you navigate that process of investigation and prosecution and what's your experience as a woman um, as opposed to a man or, or a person who doesn't identify as, as men or women as well, which is really important to think about too. So tell us about the Gender Equity Research Network. Uh, it sounds like this is actually quite an interesting and unusual network in that you are very cross-disciplinary, really, aren't you? Yeah, it was always designed that way. Mm. So because a lot of us are the only gender scholar in whatever group we're in, whatever centre we're in or discipline we're in, so we were trying to kind of form a bit of a feminist collective. So we have men and women in our group, um, and it's it's more about the type of research that you're doing. So are you are you focused on gender equality? So the other thing we were trying to do was bring together people who were kind of at an early sta- earlier stage of their career, which doesn't mean that they're all young. We've got some people at all different ages but but earlier stages of an academic career so we've got lots of people with lots of lived experience and lots of other places who've come to academia and it's it's a beautiful mix of people who use different methods different disciplines different ideas so we have people from as I said music and law and business and IT and all kinds of different people and it's Amazingly, we all get along fine. <laughs> well, and I suppose it, it would be quite lonely to a degree if you are that one researcher who specialises in feminism in this whole school. So yeah. that's a, a good reason to get that network going. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And also to, you know, um, I suppose uh, form new research collectives so that we can look at bigger things. 
Yeah. And we should talk a bit about your research as well. Susan, firstly, can we ask you a bit about uh, your specialties in this particular area? And really, uh, because you're one of the founders, would be fair to say, of yes. the gender. Uh, Sarah was the, Sarah is the mother of the Gurn. She had the idea. <laughs> I was her partner in crime I very early. That. I think you were there. <laughs> no, 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 no. She was like, let's have a gender equality research network. It was all there. It was originally <laughs> going to be called Girl. Yeah. And we were like, hey, no, Girl. No, no. <laughs> Like gender that. equality research leadership girl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was going to have Ryan Gosling. I was going to have everything. But no, we got talked out of that. So now we're doing. Um, but you're both future fellowships. Yes, so we, we both. As well. That's it. We both won these rare, perfect Ooh. things, which are five years of work, working on your own research being bought out of everything else. It's the. It's, it's a diamond. It's yeah. amazing, and it was wonderful, and now it's ended. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so, that was so, fun. so we, we've, we're part of this wonderful group of feminist researchers who've won Future Fellows, and we're all you know colleagues who support each other. And I suppose Sarah and I wanted to, having had that opportunity, wanted to kind of pay it back uh, to create the next generation of feminist Future Fellows. But it also gives you some reflective space, you know, where you think about what it is to have to do really good feminist research what it takes is is it's, it takes a lot of things to fall into place in order for that to happen including time and support but not everyone's going to win a future fellow even though they should so how are we going to navigate this crazy life that is academia and make the best of it to to get the best outcomes for women and men around the world so that's the idea my particular future fellowship was thinking about it's it's premised on the idea that there is dynamic gender shifts after big transitions. So after conflict or after a big economic shift, there will be differences that play out for men and women in in the consequence of those big transitions. So I came from being a transitional justice scholar who was looking at what happened to East Timor after the end of the occupation and independence for Timor. And I suppose I was sort of thinking, okay, so what can we think about in terms of other big transitions for women happening around our regions. I've been looking at Afghanistan and Myanmar, both of which have been really pretty damn depressing case studies, I have to tell you, in terms of women's rights and what might not really be much of a transition after all. Had promise of transition, but maybe hasn't worked out that way. And I'm particularly interested in economic governance after transition. So I was very interested in this idea of, well... What does it take if, if women are completely blocked out of these big economic decisions after a transition, then what happens to them? Because that's what I saw in Timor. Maybe there was a political independence, but I didn't see women coming into economic financial decisions. It's almost um, like they weren't part of that in no, some ways. Uh, but, mm. And all our focus was inclusion in parliament, but we didn't focus on these other big in a in a country post transition like Timor a lot of the big decisions are actually made in these economic arenas and I think we weren't focused enough on that area so I was very cognizant of that in looking at Myanmar and Afghanistan I saw the same sorts of things you know we had a very limited kind of agenda feminist agenda it was around really important things like inclusion in peace processes inclusion in constitutions inclusion in parliaments and inclusions in issues around ending impunity for sexual and gender-based violence all really important but it was like we need to add this economic area to that agenda and I suppose I was also trying to this is madness I was trying to come up with a theory of what feminist diplomacy would look like at the same time because the idea was 
because, you know, a lot of the world's moving towards this feminist foreign policy idea and feminist aid. So Canada has feminist aid. Sweden has feminist foreign policy. I was like, well, what would that look like? Like, What would a feminist diplomat look like? And particularly, what would they look like? What would they be doing in these transitional countries? What kind of work should they be doing? So I was trying to imagine what it would look like and come up with kind of a lot of options for feminist diplomacy and what did you find well we're not doing it yet so (laughs) there you go we make a lot of claims about uh, how wonderfully focused on women we are and we're not we're just it's really really marginalized work in these frontline embassies I think partly because we're very dominated by trying to get out opportunities for our companies in these new markets but also I think we are very captured by elite political processes and we don't think more broadly. I mean, if you think about what's happening in Myanmar, it's everything you can do to just keep up with the formal political processes there uh, and we'd need a much deeper investment if we were going to get broader and think about more social and demographic challenges in Myanmar. Where is the disconnect happening there? I mean, you think of Myanmar and it's had such a surge, hasn't it, in the last couple of years. But so so women are being left behind in that or what's Yeah, mm. I mean, there's a massive difference between life as a woman in an ethnic minority region or life for a Buddhist Burma in, in Yangon, for example. So there's differences in and between groups of women in Myanmar. But, you know, generally, it's still military-dominated country. Women have very little presence in the Tatmadaw. And, you know, even within the NLD, it's not so... So I think the idea is people see the lady, the Aisong Suji, the lady, and they maybe get the wrong impression of the dominance of women more generally in Burmese politics. But even below that, there's just a lot of social... Myanmar has been in conflict for such a long time and so has Afghanistan and so was Timor. We're talking about generations of people affected by conflict. That's why I think we need a much deeper strategy when we look at these transitions. So you're looking at... Imagine if World War II had gone on for 20, 30, 40 years. Imagine what the UK would be like. So you have to kind of think a bit about... The kind of strategies we need is, means you need much longer time frames and you need much deeper investments into local civil society. Because there is that intergenerational trauma there and it's just passed on to the next... There is. It's yeah. everywhere you can see it. There's still ruins in the landscape, but it is also in people's bodies and minds. I mean, I, I respect so much the journey these countries are making and it's taught me to reflect a lot on the state of First Australians and, you know, all the resistance, they've, you know, the conflict we've had here that we still don't really recognise as conflict in that transition. So I've learned a lot about the way I think about Australia's history. I was going to ask you about that and how that compared. We, we call these, you know, struggling economies or, you know, they, they've got that conflict. How does that compare to a, a first world country such as Australia? But we can't even say that we're that much further ahead from what you've been saying there are aspects that no, we No, have. I think first Australians are post suffering post conflict trauma and I don't think it's even post conflict for many first Australians. And I saw it in Canada as well. You see these settler societies still have all these transitional justice issues. And I think we should be much more honest about that than we are. Always when you do research in another country you end up learning a lot about your own <laughs> situation. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, I think about, yeah, what happens to gender in transition? I think there's this idea that it's always going to be better after the whatever the formal peace 
agreement is signed or the formal polit- or the election is held or the the Taliban have been negotiated with everything's women have an opportunity to, for their lives to be better. There's this it's called the window of opportunity thesis in in the literature and I just don't think that's true. And how about you, Sarah, with your future fellowship? What what did you concentrate on? I so, see that you had a book out earlier this year. Was that from that? Or? Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. So but that project was on global health security. So what does that mean? It was basically looking at when there are big disease outbreaks that have the potential to spread across different countries. There is diplomacy involved in how countries cooperate during those during those outbreak events. And we don't often think or talk about the diplomacy that's required and why we achieve diplomacy during, for example, a influenza outbreak. So the sharing of viruses, the sharing of information about what the spread is, where it's going, who's affected and who's not. And the degree to which we require countries to provide that information to each other to be accurate, to be honest if they don't know what it is or they can't test the virus that may be in their country and they suspect it might be part of this outbreak or not. And so my project was trying to understand in our region, the Southeast Asia region, uh, that has been affected by a number of outbreaks recently, so the in the last decade or so, so the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, SARS, and then H5N1, which was an influenza virus that was mainly amongst poultry, but it also was starting to spread to humans. There's been a dramatic rise in dengue fever and dengue um, infection across the region. And there's also been a number of smaller other types of outbreaks. And so what I was looking at was how have states come to cooperate and share information and where are the gaps in that process and what works diplomatically during those moments of heightened emergency where the tendency for a lot of people is to shut down to deny it's happening, uh, particularly if you don't think you've got the capacity to deal with it. And different political regimes respond to emergencies differently. You know, some, some, some governments tend to keep sharing the information and try and get the message out early. And other regimes are more reluctant to do that. And their instinct is to try and hide it until they feel like they've got a control on what's happening. And diplomatically, there's been a shift to try and move towards sharing information. But how you do that in countries that are very different politically and have very different social norms around how groups receive information, how they hear information, how they act on information, and also how our public health systems are set up. You know, and so gender for me, I became really interested in thinking about gender from a health perspective through this research because what I found was that, you know, we often have high volumes of community workers, which tend to be mostly women. They are too, yes. Volunteer, and they're mostly volunteers. And we rely upon them heavily to communicate these messages, and especially in emergency time. But we don't often think about how we're supporting them and, and assisting them and recognising that the work that they're doing and what we would call, quote-unquote, peacetime. There's a heavy use of this group and an expectations on this group in different situations, but how we then think about supporting them in the lead up is really important. The other thing that I think is really that isn't always talked about a lot in this space is the fact that you've got a lot of communities that may feel disconnected from their government, particularly if we're talking about countries where they may have a more, what we would call a, a sort of a non-democratic regime, a polite way of saying it, you know, where, where information is hard to get. Structures are very hierarchical, which means that, you know, you'll often have senior male leadership 
in the community level, but also in the government level. And you that means then that how information is received and how you digest it and who you trust can also be very gendered, you know, and that can really affect an outbreak emergencies then, how you get the message out, who can challenge authority. So if you're in a situation where you have a junior person challenge wanting to challenge a senior authority on their decision to maybe keep the outbreak secret or not to test, how are those things negotiated? And I argue in this research that health is an area that likes to talk about its technical solutions. And that's understandable and we should, but we also need to think about the fact that those technical solutions have to be delivered still in a social environment. There are still all those dynamics around how we economically, culturally, uh, politically engage with each other that can affect the effectiveness of our technical solutions. And I think we're seeing that at the moment in the Ebola outbreak. You know, there's been a lot of documentation done in the outbreak in West Africa and recently in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where sex and gender is determining who's infected, who receives vaccinations, who is trusted advisors on how to respond to the outbreak, who are trusted medics who provide the support during outbreaks. All those, they really have a massive impact on mm. the effectiveness. In what way? So what we find is that access to vaccines, for example, is something that tends to be determined by whether or not you've been affected by how close have you been with the person who's been affected. We know that in uh, most of the situations in the DRC at the Democratic Republic of Congo, that most of those tasks of caring and washing and, and assisting has been done by family members, which tend to mostly be women. So you automatically have women as a higher risk group. We also think there may be some association with the transference and, and, and sexual relations, but we're not quite. there's not a lot of evidence on that. The West Africa cases were where they started to suspect that. So you've got dynamics then about how women negotiate their roles and their right to access protective equipment, but also do they have rights to refuse certain roles in the family? They don't often. So then how do we think about protecting them? How do we access and provide education? And also, what do we do then as well in situations where the vaccinations may be being done by outsiders, so people who look different, who are not part of their community, and they may be in an environment where there is still conflict. There's a tradition sometimes of being wary, of being distrustful, of not entrusting your lives in the hands of people who are coming from outside because you don't know necessarily. You know, DRC is another country that has a horrific colonial past. So there's a lot of distrust of foreign communities coming in and that can really affect then how communities receive outsiders, whether or not they trust the information that they are being given. And something like a person coming up to you with a needle and wanting to inject you, and you've just seen a loved one die in front of you two days ago from a horrific illness. Makes you a bit sceptical. Makes you a bit sceptical. Funnily enough. Yeah, you know, and you've never seen it before. So, you know, mm. so these are a lot more, and that's been really important, I think, to acknowledge the gender dynamics of, of health emergencies. And again, you know, you still see a little bit of shifting in the seat or, you know, they're people. We're just treating everyone, you know, or just get the information out. But it's like, well, actually, how you receive information, how I receive information, the power that I have to act on that information versus you 
may not be the same. And it's not until you really think about those dynamics. I hadn't even thought of that. For, for women who are volunteers too, I suppose they're not really given the credit for that care that they're, that they're undertaking, and which is massive in an outbreak like that as well. Absolutely. And so there's been some amazing research that's now been done in the West African outbreaks. So in uh, Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone, and how you have, you know, about majority of the population who are providing the health care were either in a voluntary capacity or a low-paid capacity. You had your higher levels coming in, or you had a, a very small number of, of doctors, but a vast majority who were doing that daily work and putting their lives at risk. You know, that's the other thing as well, because for a number of months there, they were providing that care without the protective equipment that they needed. And, you know, and these were people then who then had to make really terrible decisions about do they go home to their families every day do they communicate with them do they who how do they deal in stigma as well so you know so not only are these individuals not necessarily highly paid or they may not be paid at all they're working in a voluntary capacity hoping they can get put on the wages which is quite common in some of these situations they were also facing stigma and and a lot of fear in their own communities which is quite natural when you think about what we were seeing, the ravages of the Ebola outbreak and, and the way that disease affects you. It's it's visually and emotionally horrific. Mm. And so you can see that we don't talk enough, I think, about in a situation where you don't have much power, how do you negotiate it? Especially because we rely on those people, right? Mm-hmm. If they weren't doing it, particularly in that situation, there's not a lot of others stepping in to do that work. Can it be negotiated? Is there... Hope I for think, those intractable situations. <laughs> I think this is, you know, this is the this is the importance of of recognizing that, of actually talking mm. about who occupies those positions and uh, who do we expect to be doing what we call the health task roles. And how much does our system, our health security system and our disease prevention system benefit as a global, you know, society? How much do we benefit from the low-paid volunteer communities in Pakistan that are going out every single day and risking their lives in some situations to make sure that children are vaccinated against polio. How much do we benefit from, you know, a lot of the community workers in Myanmar who are on very low incomes, who go out every day and document which women are about to have children, which means that we know which children need to have vaccinations to be, you know, protected from diphtheria and measles and mumps. And what that does as a community, the benefit that we all get when people are doing these roles, we take it for granted. And I think a lot of this work is trying to now raise awareness that actually we need to see these people and we need to see the work that they're doing. That it's not just the doctors and nurses. All power to them. They're wonderful, do yeah. incredible work. Yeah. But there's, well, a, there's a whole army behind them as well. I think also it's about saying privileging the nurses as well, particularly in a lot of these environments, because often it's more the nurses <laughs> and the community healthcare workers that are doing this daily work. Doctors are great. Love doctors. But in the global health space, 75% of low and middle income jobs are held by women to this day. And that's in developing countries. So, you know, we need to think a lot more then about what that means and how as a society we've come to take that for granted. And the impact of that. Mm-hmm. So from these two diversified, completely different areas of research, you've come together to create a, a well, great I, little network. Well, actually, we do quite a lot of stuff 
that is very similar. So Sarah and I also think about women in peace processes mm-hmm. and we think about women's rights under international law and sort of justice responses to women who have suffered sexual and gender-based violence. So we do a lot of things in common as well. We do. So we, we Fighting e- the crossover there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we met each other when I, I used to be in Canberra at the ANU and Sarah mm. was at QUT. You know, we met each other many years ago. So we've been in the sort of the same space, sort of feminist international relations, feminist politics, feminist international law for a really long time. And I think that helps because we we know what it is to be part of a really strong community of scholars. So I have to say that all around Australia, there's probably, I don't know, 30, 40 mm. feminist scholars in kind of our vague field. And we're all pretty pretty good mates, really, because yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. it's important work and we're a small country and we, you know, we have to have this sort of feeling of collectivism. So that's also what we're trying to do is sort of build that community here at Griffith so that people feel part of something big, you know, because it can be really depressing, our work. I mean, I... You know, it's it, you have to practice quite a lot of self care. I imagine it would be quite overwhelming at times to try and deal with these problems. Yeah, and I mean, you're you know, you're just writing and reading about it. You're not living it. It's, it's just yeah. it's an incredible privilege to be able to work on these issues, but it also mm. comes with a lot of responsibility to the people whose lives you're writing about. Yes. So a lot of the kind of interests we're also interested in making sure people are doing really ethical research and thinking about. You know, how are we going to solve some of these global problems? So really applied, practical, useful, even if that's a theoretical breakthrough, nothing so useful as good theory, right? Yeah. But, you know, it's got to be, we're, we're, we're engaged with the world. This is research that's engaged with the world. So that's that's kind of what we're trying to Well, I look forward up. to hearing how these podcasts roll out over the next few weeks and hearing these crossovers between what you might think are actually quite different areas, but of course, household finance and politics mm-hmm. are quite integrally combined. If your household finances, if you're not on top of that, or if you've got too much responsibility for it, or you're not taking the, the, the right decisions with that, you're not really going to be in a position where you can take up a position of power or consider doing that. So. That's right. The macro and the micro are always connected. I mean, that's one of the big insights of feminist research, personal is the political, always. So, yeah, our, our research, our researchers are looking at every level of how gender plays out in people's lives. And I think for us as well, what we were really keen to do was to change the narrative around gender research in the sense that universities, when they talk about promoting the research that they do, on the TV, you'll often see, you know, there's been a discovery into how fish scales provide excellent sunscreen protection or a new type of, you know, drug that's been developed or a new type of missile information technology. And I guess for us, as researchers in this space, we know that societies benefit economically, socially, politically from gender equality. It's no accident. It's not just happened that you look at the countries that are performing best at economically, that are most peaceful, most prosperous, have done more work towards trying to address gender inequality. And for us, there's always this sense that it's seen as something that's either too hard or abstract or just happens by accident. And for us, as researchers, we know that's not the case. There's there are actually... very real and tangible benefits from... Absolutely. From dealing with these complex gender issues. Yeah, right. and, so and it requires us, rigor. It requires and rigor and it also requires universities recognizing that this is research that has an output that makes a difference and that they benefit from and communities benefit from. 
Are there any particular researchers that you'd like to mention that we'll be speaking to just to wrap up our discussion today of uh, this first episode of The Gender Card? Well, I think one of our first uh, podcasts is going to be from Adele Pavlidis. Her work is on gender and women's sport. And the first time I met Adele, she was like, I do roller derby. And I was like, that is so cool. (laughs) Feminist roller derby politics. Yeah, you know. But she has this kind of talk about from the, like thinking about kind of the tribal politics of particular sports and women in sport, but also this much bigger really big imaginative vision of what would sport look like if it took gender equality seriously what would sport heroes look like would the culture of sport change she has a really big vision transformative vision for sport and I just I love it I love everything about it and it's made me think really differently about the way I perceive sport and enjoy sport and participate in sport myself so yeah I think people will find that I mean I know Aussies love a Aussies love their sport. Oh, it's such a central part of our life, isn't it? Our society. (laughs) Well, this is a way, I think, for kind of a feminist recapturing of what what does it mean to imagine... She has this thing where you imagine a sporting... You're told all about this sporting team playing on an oval on a Saturday morning and, you know, everyone always imagines male, male elite physical specimens, you know, in a highly structured, hierarchical team. And it's like... We have to think about these things. You know, we have to change the way we think. And why we make those assumptions. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's exactly the right kind of podcast to start with, I think, for us. And I think, too, because of the International Day of the Elimination of Violence Against Women, I think it's really important as well to think about the reason why we're having to still have that day, tragically, is because the way in which we still think about what is femininity, what is masculinity, who is weak, who is strong, um, what sorts of, you know, group dynamics do we accept, you know? And as Adele says, you know, when you think about, you know, the men getting together for the game and the type of expectations around how men should group act as a, in a group in that behaviour and how that can kind of also lead to them being part of conformist behaviours that can actually be quite damaging for them as well as for society as well. I think there's actually much more connections across these areas and, and that's one of the things that Adele has, is quite keen on. And I think also then we're going to be having Natalie yep. Osborne as well talking a lot about climate and sustainability and our, and our urban environments and how we think about their design and how we can think about their design in, in, a, in, a, in a way that celebrates and recognises our diversity. I think all the podcasts are going to fascinate people. They're very different. We've got Kate Van Door talking about orphanage tourism. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is one, this is a classic one where we think we're doing the right thing and actually we're we're, we're making it worse, you know, uh, this this kind of... Um, and that was a very personal story for her as well. very yeah, personal story. And, and that research Kate is doing is literally changing the world, mm-hmm. is literally changing the way that people are undertaking tourism and thinking about more ethical and deinstitutionalizing children. I mean, it's, it's, it's world-changing stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I think people will get... The six researchers we're going to introduce you to are very different. They're extremely different types of people. They're doing very different things, but they're all united by this kind of vision of justice and, you know, a world that is fundamentally restructured around gender equality. So it's it's fascinating and it, it's hopeful. 
it's hopeful. I think that's the perfect way to end our first episode of the Gender Card podcast. Susan Harris-Rimmer, Sarah Davies, thank you for joining us on the Gender Card. A pleasure. Thank you, Nats. That was founding members of Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network, Dr Susan Harris-Rimmer and Dr Sarah Davies, ending this first episode of the Gender Card podcast. That's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced for the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.